Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case, and welcome to 2021. What better way to kick off the new year than to answer some questions from our devoted listeners, which we'll do today. First, we'll take on a series of questions that deal with the dilemma many athletes face, deciding which rides or workouts to sacrifice when you're short on time. We'll also tackle a question about zone one rides and whether you can get them on the mountain bike. We'll discuss how to change the type of rider you are and if it can be done based on a question from a listener who wants to become a punchy rider. Finally, we feel a question about the differences between structured and unstructured intervals. Are there any downsides to getting your intensity in so-called unstructured ways? Our guest coach today is Hannah Finchamp. You may know her as a member of the Orange Seal off-road team, but she's also a board-certified athletic trainer and a certified USA Cycling coach. She has degrees in both athletic training, focused on injury prevention, and in exercise science. Now, let's dive into the discussion. Let's make you fast. We've had a lot of changes here at Fast Talk over the past year or so. During one change, we left behind two popular episodes that we're bringing back. Next week, your podcast feed will show three new episodes. One will be a brand new episode, while two are favorites from the past. Episode 31, How to Avoid Illness or Just Cope With It, which seems appropriate to bring back now, given the times. And episode 37, Sugar, Wheat, Paleo, and Performance Nutrition, a popular topic after the holidays. We're bringing them back simply to make sure the catalog of episodes on FastTalkLabs.com is complete. So enjoy three episodes next week, and feel free to check out their transcripts on our website, FastTalkLabs.com. All right, our first question comes from Sylvia Grinson. She's in Auckland, New Zealand. She writes, Given work life and responsibilities as a mom of two, I always feel like I'm falling behind in training due to a simple lack of time to fit it all in. I only have six to eight hours a week to train. I would like to commit to the polarized training model, but each time it comes to sacrificing a ride type when time is tight, it's the easy rides I feel best about scrapping. So it begs the question, am I sacrificing the right rides? Do I still need these recovery easy rides? How many do I need? And if I should be getting them, what are ways you can suggest I squeeze them in? Hannah, I'll turn it over to you first. This is a really great question because whether people are asking it directly or not is probably something people should be asking because I think that six to eight hour range a week is what a lot of amateurs or lifestyle athletes or just anyone with a full-time job is really looking at. And while that's a lot of time to commit to a hobby, it can be difficult for cycling. You know, when you're looking at intervals versus easy rides versus long rides, it starts to get really overwhelming about thinking what to put in and when and where. So this is a really great question. I like it a lot because I think about it a lot with the athletes that I coach. And I think the most important aspect of this question is defining what an easy ride is um, and what a recovery ride is and putting a little bit of a definition in there because we shouldn't be scrapping all aerobic rides. So aerobic meaning with oxygen, 
meaning that you're able to utilize, you're able to breathe fairly easily throughout your entire ride. You could talk, hold a conversation, that type of thing. And those rides are critical. We cannot scrap those rides. And the reason for that is aerobic rides offer a different type of physiological adaptation than interval rides do. So those aerobic rides and those specific aerobic adaptations cannot be overlooked because that's what will supply the foundation for those interval rides. Now, recovery rides, you might be able to get away with scrapping a little bit more. Those easy one hour spins in which, you know, you're really below even 50% um, of your FTP, or it's just, you know, you're literally just spinning out the legs. Those recovery rides can usually be done in any fashion. So any sort of active recovering that can be stretching, that can be going on a walk. You know, maybe you and your kids want to do something on that day that gets your body moving, um, but doesn't count towards that six to eight hours a week that you really have to dedicate to your alone with the bike time. So that's a way that you can incorporate that recovery um, and be able to scrap those kind of active recovery rides from your training. But I would still highly encourage you to do aerobic rides or rides without intervals in that training time. And that's where you might get into more of a periodized training model in which you're going to weight your season with a lot more of those aerobic rides at the start and then work into some of those intervals later in the season. Excellent. Trevor, I bet you agree wholeheartedly with that. I do. And I think the only thing I have to add to what Hannah just said, and, and that was great, is just a, to, to flip it around and address this belief that harder is better and more is always better. And that's not really the case with interval work. We've cited this research many times two to three interval sessions per week. So hard sessions per week, I shouldn't even just say interval. So if you're going and doing races on Zwift, whatever you're doing to, to do your intensity, two to three is a, as much as you want to get in a week. More than that, you're not going to see any further adaptation, but it's actually going to fatigue you. It could actually take you the other way. You're going to go over that bell-shaped curve and see less benefits. And Ryan, you have a family yourself, you've got a couple kids, you've got a, a new crazy dog running around the house. How do you manage to fit it all in? Can you speak from personal experience here? Yeah, I mean, and this one rings rings true for me. One thing that I, I really like is how, Hannah, you know, you really differentiated and, and said we need to define what those, what is the ride, essentially what the what is the goal of the ride. And in the question, we have that recovery slash easy ride sort of combined. But yeah, I think it's a big, um, a big factor there to say, well, what is the purpose of the ride? And that's something, you know, that I've always kept in the back of my mind and learned early on in coaching is if you don't have a purpose for the ride, then just don't do it because it might just, it might not be appropriate. It might tire you out. What, you know, and if you don't have a purpose, then it, maybe there's other things you need to be doing at the time. So I think, yeah, like defining those ride types, is it truly a recovery ride because you need that and you just did interval sessions? If so, that's great. Or is it, yeah, like you said, more of an aerobic ride where we still have some serious benefits that we can generate from that type of ride. And in that case, yeah, we wouldn't scrap that. So 
it's been the same experience for me. Yeah. With, you know, one and then a second kid and trying to figure that stuff out. And I think that's, you know, one of the key points that sticks out is just figuring out what is the purpose of the ride. And yeah, if it's, if it's a recovery ride and I have all this other stuff going on, eh, maybe just scrap it and go play a game with the kids, go on a walk, take the dog out. That's fine. That's recovery. But if it is more of an aerobic ride and it has a certain purpose where it's going to help build those aerobic adaptations, then yeah, that's something I want to make time for. These are also great rides to get into neuromuscular training. We've talked about that and the benefits of, of neuromuscular work. So if you just hate the idea of getting on the bike when time is so limited, you only have have an hour. If you hate the idea of just sitting there at a really low heart rate and wattage, work in some, some cadence work. Get that, that neuromuscular work. Don't do the, the big heavy sprints or big gear work, but more the, the cadence type neuromuscular work. Yeah, and I think that is an important point as well, as I think the word interval can have so many different meanings for so many different people. And, you know, I, I agree with what everyone's saying here is you, those high intensity workouts, there really is a cap to how many you can do a week. You're just, you're not going to get the benefit after a certain point. But throwing in some tempo intervals, um, meaning, you know, interval just meaning a period of time in which you're sitting at that intensity and tempo is still relatively lower intensity. It's still aerobic. You still should be able to breathe fairly easily. You can throw in um, those little efforts just, just to get, get your body moving and to feel good. And, and if you're like me as an athlete and you always have to feel like you're doing something, I think that that can help that um, mental aspect as well. Let's turn to another question that really, um, pertains to this time-crunched athlete as well. This one has a little bit more to do with how weight training and intervals can coincide. So let's take this question from Craig LaPlante. Um, Again, due to a change in job and family life, he's run short on time. So he writes, in order to fit it all in, I started Chris Carmichael's time-crunched training plan a few weeks ago. As I'm sure you're familiar, it is basically all high-intensity intervals on alternating days, about six to eight hours per week. The sessions have me pretty cooked and feeling fatigued the next day, but I've made noticeable progress already. Subsequently, I've reduced lower body weight training to once per week, reduced the volume, and essentially shifted to maintenance mode in order to optimize recovery. My question is, I often wonder how much the weight training is affecting or hampering my development as a cyclist. Monday and Wednesday may be, quote, rest days from the bike, but I'm still doing high intensity work, albeit on a different part of the body. How much crossover is there? Is the body recognizing stress as stress, period, despite the idea that it's getting distributed to different body parts and probably also different physiological systems? My concerns are with potential burnout and if it is possible to optimize to some degree both pursuits. Hannah, I guess I'll start here with you again. What would you have to say to Craig, who's trying to balance a lot of uh, what sounds like high-intensity stuff just on different uh, areas of the body? Yeah, this is another great question. Uh, I get this question all the time, and I was even forced with this question a lot myself in college trying to balance so many things. And, you know, weight training and intervals and aerobic rides – you know, all of these things have been shown to be helpful. 
uh, to, to your cycling, to your athletic pursuits. So the question is, to, to what degree do we need to try and shove it all in when you have, um, he references the six to eight hours a week again. So when I get this question from my athletes, you know, the first thing that I like to discuss is if we're training for cycling, that makes cycling our priority because there is a level of sports specificity that we need to honor. We need to stay on the bike. We need to work those energy systems. We need to work those ranges of motion. We need to be comfortable in that position. We need to be comfortable producing power in that position. Not to mention the fact that cycling is largely a cardiovascular sport. While there is certainly, certainly strength involved, we need to work the cardiovascular system. And that's what we talk about a lot when we talk about aerobic versus anaerobic versus when we specify what percentage of our FTP or VO2 we're at, we're all talking about the cardiovascular system. Now, when we can put strength into that, it certainly benefits us. But in my opinion, I don't think that strength training should take precedent over cycling. So if you only have an hour to train each day, I think it's better to dedicate that time to the bike, something that is sport specific to your goals. It's when you start having the extra time and when you want to take it to that next level that you can start adding in that weight training. Now, I do think that there is an important point to make for the fact that uh, weight training is great for injury prevention because cycling is a non-weight sport. And so we can suffer from bone density issues. Um, it's also a very, uh, it allows for a lot of chronic injuries because we do put long hours in the bike. It's we're in one position, we're only moving in the sagittal plane. So strength training and those type of things can benefit um, the injury prevention aspect. And that's where I might encourage you is if you really are a time crunched athlete where you have to decide between weight training and cycling, I would, I personally would pick the cycling and then I'd create, you know, maybe a, a 15 to 20 minute core workout that you can throw in at any point during the day, whether it's waking up 15 minutes early or the second you finish your ride, where you can just do a couple weight bearing exercises and a couple maybe lateral movements to help with those muscles that we aren't often using on the bike. What about the person that says, you know what, I, you know, I'm not, I like weight training enough that I'm willing to do that and ride the bike and I don't want to sacrifice either, but I do want to get better so to speak, at cycling, not so much at weight training. How do I make those two work together if, I'm, if I know that I still need to get into the gym just because I like lifting weights? It's important to honor those desires as well. So I think, you know, I do have athletes who say that and who love going to the gym, and I think that's great. And so for those athletes, that's, I would recommend actually, um, once again, there is science that goes both ways on this, but I like to do, he says that his workouts are alternating. So if you have a high intensity workout, I would actually do your strength training after that cycling workout so that you put in 
your full effort in the cycling workout so that you're not tired from the gym in that cycling workout and then go to the gym after that hard workout so that to the next day when you have an easy day, it's truly an easy day and you're truly letting your body offload from that hard workouts that you put in. It is really important to realize that weight training is not a recovery day. Uh, I've heard a lot of athletes say this where they'll go, well, today's my day off the bike, so I'm going to hit the weight room. Uh, weight training is more damaging on your body than riding the bike than even doing a hard workout on the bike. So it is the exact opposite of a recovery day. So I completely agree with Hannah. I personally and I have all my athletes do their weight training on the same day that they, they do their intensity work on the bike, make it a really big day, and then get a proper recovery day to, to adapt. It's not unlike, um, you know, we've had these conversations with Dr. Seiler, and he's brought up the, I think it's the Ingebrigtsen brothers who will often go to events and um, race and ah, it's already been a hard day. Let's just make it that much harder. Let's have let's stack the hard stuff on the same day so that that's the hard day and the easy days are truly easy. And so after their event, they've just raced their butts off. They'll go out and do more of a workout after the race, just completely deplete themselves that one day, but give them the chance in the subsequent days to recover from that. It's somewhat analogous, I would say. It took me a while to understand this, but I was told very early in my cycling career, make your big days big and make your easy days really easy. And this is this is part of it. If you're going to do something that's damaging and hard, do the intervals and the weights on the same day. Make that big day really big. Yeah, I really like this this topic. It's uh, I think you get a lot of different uh, thoughts on on how to approach this. And I think with thinking about the time crunch training plan, you know, it's, it's very particular to, yeah, the intensity. I'm a big fan of strength training because we, it does work. Putting it into context of something like this time crunch plan and understanding how that, how those days are laid out. You know, I think it's, it's interesting looking at what, what Craig's approach was here, where he actually reduced the volume and essentially he shifted to that maintenance mode to optimize recovery, to allow himself to do some of the body weight training, uh, some of the strength training. So I think that's an interesting thing to consider too, is, you know, where in the year is this, how does this fit in and yeah, what is the training around it? So to put together a time crunch, time crunched training program with strength training, no way I would never do that. But thinking about this and saying, all right, well, this, this, you know, time crunch plan can be good for when you are focusing on the bike. Yeah, great. You'll get your, your intervals in, but you know, at, at the appropriate time of the year, you know, winter off season, right around where we are now, then I'm a big fan of actually reprioritizing the, uh, the cycling and the strength and saying, Hey, if you don't have anything to get ready for right away, let's actually prioritize the strength. So with my athletes, I'll, I'll do, um, you know, two to three days uh, of, of strength workout if we can and still balance it with cycling, but I actually have them put cycling on the back burner for a little while, you know, it could be four to six weeks roughly, and just get a good session of strength in and really say, Hey, just, Take that time, you know, let, let the bike sort of sit, sit down a little bit more and just put it aside. But let's work on that strength, get you to move appropriately, move differently, 
and make you really, I think the exciting part is feeling those strength developments. Like when you do come away from a block of strength and you, you have that sensation of, wow, like this feels good, you know? And, uh, and then we, we reintroduce that into the bike. You know, that's one thing that I like doing. And I think you, you mentioned, you know, stacks too, figuring out how to stack those workouts together. I've also seen, um, as we transition closer to more in-season training, doing some work where we might have a strength session on day one and, and then the second day followed up with, uh, you know, a, a tempo or some kind of sub-threshold session. And that's a two-day block that I've used successfully in the past that I think works well. But definitely, once we get past that point of, all right, we need to focus on the bike, then the strength training definitely takes a back seat. But it's, it's a... <laughs> I just, I love the topic because there's so many ways to approach it and in so many ways to sort of skin the cat, if you will. No, I think Ryan raised a really important point of look at the time of the year. There, there's certain, if you're time crunched, there's a time of the year where you should be spending every minute on the bike, but there's a time of the year where both to, to help overall adaptations and also just to maintain overall health, uh, maybe sacrificing some time on the bike for weights is, is really key. And just one last thing I want to throw in that that might help with this. There was a really interesting study about 12 years ago where they had one group of athletes do a single set of a workout for six weeks. And then they had another group of athletes do four sets of the same workout for, for six weeks. So one group was doing a heck of a lot more training than the other. And what they found at the end of the study was the group that did about one set saw about 80 to 85 percent of the same gains as the group that did four sets. So basically they showed there is a real depreciation in in gains from each successive set, whatever workout you're doing. So if you're time crunch and you're saying, well, I'd like to, I'm at the time of the year where I'd like to do some intervals or some high intensity, I'd also like to do some weights. You might find gains from saying, instead of trying to do three sets on the bike, I'm going to do two or just one get a shorter workout and then go and get time in the weight room because you're going to get a lot more benefit from that time in the weight room than that second or third set on the bike. Yeah. And that extra time in the weight room too, if you're doing four sets, think about the extra recovery, the added muscle damage you can throw in there and how that affects yeah. the, the cycling afterward too. And sorry, I said there were two studies. The second study explored exactly that and showed that um, there's cyclists, this was actually a study in cyclists, would get more gains out of that mix of backing down a little bit on the cycling and adding the weights than trying to maximize time on the bike. All right, let's turn now to a question from Steve Herman. He is an off-road focused athlete and he writes, I really feel the need to incorporate mountain bike into my base training. It's less boring, not as cold in the winter, and I get some skills work at the same time. But the fundamental principle of aerobic base rides is having a steady effort, which is very difficult to manage on single track. Between the turns and keeping momentum over terrain, mountain bike is inherently stochastic in its power demands. While I can easily keep a very low heart rate on the road for a similar, quote, feeling ride, my heart rate will be easily 10 to 15 beats per minute higher on the mountain bike. Is the LSD ride, the long, slow distance ride, impossible on the mountain bike trail? Is the higher heart rate relative to road a problem or simply a result of the greater contribution of the upper body in mountain bike? 
Hannah, I'll start with you since you have such experience on the mountain bike and uh, probably have fielded this question before. For me, I, I love to do most of my aerobic rides on the mountain bike. Um, so I think that Steve, I think he's off to a really good start here because I think that's a place that some off-road athletes can almost go astray is forgetting the fact that off-road is different than the road. It has different demands. Um, you know, off-road isn't, it's not just a power profile. That certainly is a big part of it, but our ability to read the trail and to execute the turns and the skills and all of that plays a huge part in our results and our abilities. So spending that long period of time on the mountain bike is really critical. And I think that when you are focused on big training goals, it's actually really difficult to do your intervals on the mountain bike, because when you have five, 10, 15, especially those longer intervals, it can be really difficult to maintain those extremely specific wattages and high end wattages on the mountain bike, because you know, you, you might not be able to pedal through a turn or there are a lot of, uh, downhills, especially on the mountain bike that you can't pedal through. Whereas on the road, a lot of the time you might be able to just dump it into a really hard gear and still maintain that effort. But yes, I think it can be harder to maintain that easier heart rate on the mountain bike. Um, and that is where, you know, I think that we have to allow for a little bit of freedom, um, but also really examine what that means. So if you're 10 to 15 beats higher heart rate on the mountain bike, you know, are you still staying aerobic? You know, the, bo the bottom line is if you're doing long, slow distance, that's still going back to these aerobic uh, type of rides. So you want to have your breathing under control, you want to be able to, you know, if you need to check that, it's, it's maintaining a conversation essentially. And it's really critical to do this. And, you know, we already answered a question similar to aerobic rides, but I think it's important to really dive into what these aerobic rides are doing because I, I think that when people go and do aerobic rides, it can feel, like he says on the road, uh, a little bit boring. But if we understand what our bodies are doing, I think we're a lot more willing to put that time in. So, you know, during aerobic rides, you're increasing um, over time. These are the adaptations that are happening. You're, you're increasing your heart's stroke volume. So that's the amount of blood that your heart can produce per heartbeat. So if you think about it, that means that if you're producing more blood per heartbeat, that means that you would need less beats in order to circulate the same amount of blood. So over time, we're lowering the heart rate at the same intensity. So we're going faster with less effort. You're also increasing the number of capillaries you have. You're also, you know, it's been shown that you can uh, decrease your breathing rate by as much as 20 to 30% with focusing on these aerobic rides. You can increase your myoglobin, uh, which is what helps carry oxygen in the body, you can increase that by some studies have showed 75 to 80%. And you're also increasing your mitochondria, num the number of mitochondria and the size of mitochondria, um, which we all probably remember from our high school science classes that the mitochondria is that powerhouse of the cell. 
So these are all really critical adaptations to make. So to get back to the question, as long as you're staying aerobic for the majority of the ride, you're still achieving the goal of the ride. Now, I personally, I think that if there's these little kickers and stuff like there are on the mountain bike and your heart rate spikes for 10, 15 seconds to get over that little kicker, it's okay. That's not going to, that's not going to minimize all the other aerobic gains that you've made on the ride. That's just the nature of it. It's fine. You shift down into an easier gear. You recover your heart rate as quickly as possible. And then you remember what the goal is of the ride and you go back into that aerobic state. So in that, in that case, it's okay if you have these little spikes. It's just a matter of keeping the heart rate um, in that zone for most of the ride. And if you're not able to do that, then you might just need to find a different trail or something of that sort because it certainly is possible to do those, he says, long, slow distance rides on the mountain bike. You just might need to be a little bit specific about the trails you're picking or maybe also you need to look at the gearing on your bike for the terrain that you're riding because I know that that can be an issue for a lot of mountain bikers as well as well gosh these these climbs are so long and so hard and I'm already in my easiest gear well if you get you know a larger cassette um, an eagle cassette something like that then all of a sudden you have this ability to spin and keep the rides a little bit more aerobic and to hit those goals. Ryan, as a mountain biker, do you agree with all of that? What What else would you share? Yeah, I think uh, the the terrain selection that you mentioned, Hannah, and the gearing, yeah, are two of the two big pieces for me. That this is where I have to uh, kind of shout out to the single speed because uh, I I love riding my single speed, especially this time of year for those long rides. It's nice because it forces me to select the right terrain, and you know I can still find dirt. Uh, to go play around on. The nice thing about that is when you do go up hills, you know, you're out of the saddle and you're pedaling very slowly. So heart rate really stays very nicely under control as long as you choose your terrain wisely. So I think everybody should be riding a single speed, number one. Um, <laughs> plug, plug. Who are you sponsored by, Ryan? <laughs> not biased at all but yeah i think something like that is really good and then you get those those technique benefits in addition too and you can also throw in some you know we were talking some neuromuscular work uh, earlier but you can you can throw in some different options there but yeah i think just to follow up with what hannah said i think those are two big considerations is finding the best terrain and if it's like a if it's a loop that you're doing maybe the other way is a little bit easier to help you maintain that better and then yeah the gearing to try and figure out you know, can I, can I just adjust this gearing to make it more accommodating to what I need, but also just, uh, look at, you know, the other piece is looking at how, how do you approach hills or whether they're long hills or, or short punchy climbs, um, or those, those kind of moderate ones where you're not sure just how hard to go. Um, but I find talking through sometimes the terrain that you're riding can be helpful and saying, oh, well, yeah, I do. You know, sometimes it's just hard to slow yourself down. So there is that mental piece of, you know, can I just take an easier gear and go, yeah, all the way up into my 50 tooth uh, chain ring and or cog and, uh, and just sit there and, and spin lightly, you know, and that's, I think, mentally a really hard thing for people to do this time of year or just in general. So sometimes mentally forcing yourself to do that is 
is is going to be new, you know, and challenging. Having some discipline, holding back yeah. a little bit sometimes <laughs> yes. can be hard. Yeah. yeah. Trevor? I don't have too much to add here. I really liked what Hannah was saying about getting at the whole perceived effort. Uh, I, I think another important thing to remember is mountain biking is often a full body exercise. You're using your arms a lot more than you would on a, on a road bike. When you start bringing more limbs into the equation, that's going to raise your heart rate for the same actual perceived effort. So uh, I like that she said, as long as it's, it's still feeling aerobic, that that's important. Yeah, you, you have to adjust that heart rate a little bit for when you're on the trail. When I'm actually doing my easy rides, I, even if I was a mountain biker, I would still probably prefer to do my high intensity work on the road where I can be steady. But when I'm doing my easy rides, I actually love to get out on the mountain bike. Um, because it keeps it fun. It keeps it interesting. Uh, I agree with what Hannah said. If it's just a little five, 10 second effort, that's fine. Uh, I don't have the ego where if I get to a really big, hard, steep climb and go, well, this is going to take several minutes of really high intensity. Uh, if I'm out for an easy ride, I'll, I'll just get off the mountain bike and walk up and keep going. All right. This next question comes from Nathan Radiski in Helena, Montana. He writes, I've been getting back into competitive cycling the last few years after taking some time off and having a young family. I usually consider myself more of a roller type rider due to my size. I'm 6'4", 186 pounds. But I've found in the higher race categories, my lack of quote, as he puts it, quote, anaerobic power became both a weakness and a limiter. On climbs under five minutes, I found myself spit out the back and would have to burn a ton of energy to claw myself back to the group. I'm excited to use a more polarized training model considering I love nothing more than long four-hour rides and threshold intervals. I'm curious about your thoughts on also using the base and build period to focus on my anaerobic energy systems as well. Maybe a Zwift race once a week? I would love to become more of a punchy racer, but have had a tough time finding gains in this short power duration energy system. Any hope, or am I destined for the solo breakaways and gravel events? And for reference, uh, Nathan is uh, saying he can do about 422 to 425 watts for five minutes. Um, Trevor, I know you've conversed a little bit with Nathan. Do you want to start, uh, start with this one? I gave a lengthy answer. I'll, I'll give the at least the start of the answer, and then I'm really interested in hearing what Hannah and, and Ryan have to say about this. But the short of my answer is getting back to that whole idea of power scaling with weight, which is generally true. But above a certain weight, you start hitting just straight up physiological limits, regardless of what your weight is, and power will not continue to scale evenly with with weight. Hey, Trevor. Before you mm -hmm. go any further, don't you want to tell us the, the cool term and the story about well, bones here? I was going to avoid it, but if you really want me to, it's <laughs> called allometric scaling. Very Thanks, good. Chris. Very good. All right. You can get back to your answer now. So, yeah. Well, so the, the bone thing is if they so – I'm sure everybody's heard of that 1950s uh, movie, the, the – what was it? The 100-Foot Woman? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> You'll have, we'll have to Google that so, later. <laughs> well, it's, it's an old movie where they, they use special effects to make this woman 100 feet tall, and then she went rampaging around the city. 
the truth of the matter is she would take one step and break every bone in her legs because not everything scales proportionally uh, and she would have a real tough time. <laughs> that's the that's the very, very brief answer on uh, allometric scaling and why this sci-fi right. movie wouldn't work. So this athlete is bumping up uh, a little bit against that. Are you calling Nathan a 100-foot tall woman? No, I'm not. <laughs> Just <laughs> kidding. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. The issue is you look at what pros can do on those shorter climbs. So when we're talking a four or five minute climb, uh, and he said he's in the higher categories, they're going to be six watt, six to seven watts per kilogram. And for him, that means he's got to be able to put out well over 500 watts for five minutes. And that's tough. That's really tough for anybody to do. There aren't many pros who can put out that big a power. So sure, he can improve that wattage, but to be able to put out the sort of wattage at his weight to simply power over that climb with the, the people who are better at those, those four or five minute climbs, I think that's going to be a struggle. Uh, so my answer to him was really to focus on other ways to improve his ability to get over those climbs. But before I, I give any of that, um, I'm really interested, Hannah and Ryan, what's your feeling on this? Am I full of it? Do you agree with that? And, and what's your advice? Yeah, I, I do agree with what you're saying. For Nathan specifically, is maybe a little bit of the hard truth. I'd love to answer this question, you know, just from the question, if we didn't have his metrics in there, just just thinking of the question as it is, because this question hits home a little bit for me, because my journey in sport, I was a triathlete uh, for 10 years before I came up, became a mountain biker. So that whole time trial uh, type of effort was absolutely my bread and butter. So I came to the mountain bike world with a great threshold and unsure really of what this feeling was when all of a sudden I was cross-eyed and you know couldn't couldn't feel my hands and and all of these things because you're breathing so hard and I think for some people that anaerobic effort can be uh, a little bit of a limiter and so frustrating too when you feel like someone's gapping you on these little short punches and then for the next hour you're just riding the same speed as them you know 20 seconds behind it's like okay well I'm strong so what the heck so you know and 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 this is a difficult topic because it it can be trained but this is also one of those things that can be uh slightly genetic you know we're getting into those type one and type two muscle fibers so you know, what you're born with, what you've trained, they both play in. So some people are, are going to be naturally have those slow twitch muscle fibers in which they can go for a long period of time. And as Nathan says, you know, are destined for the solo breakaways and gravel events. And then other people are going to have some more of, of those fast twitch muscle fibers in which they're just going to be really excellent sprinters and be able to put huge torque through the pedals. And then there are, there's, there's some ability, some of those fibers are going to be like that forever. And then there's some of those muscle fibers that you can transition. You can change, alter some of those 
slow twitch fibers into fast twitch fibers. And this is just talking on, on a very basic level. And this is something that I personally um, have experienced because very quickly when I said I wanted to be a mountain biker, this was the immediate focus for me for you know several years at the beginning of my career to be able to handle those really fast starts and things like that. You know, getting down to his question, I think that if you're following a periodized approach, I, I wouldn't recommend throwing a Zwift race into your base building period. That aerobic period is so critical to make those aerobic adaptations because they will be the foundation for that anaerobic work later. Now, as someone who struggles um, or needs the extra work in the anaerobic system, you are gonna have to work on it more than others. So that means maybe periodizing your year out so that you have more time to work on those anaerobic efforts or those fast twitch muscle fibers before your A races, making sure that you have plenty of time and plenty of time with plenty of recovery, because remember those workouts are gonna require more recovery than other workouts to work on those systems before your main races. And also to kind of tie in the other, another question that we've already had is, you know, this could be a place as well that weight training can really kind of uh, be a catalyst for these type of changes, because that's a way that you can kind of alter these muscle fibers maybe in a more expedited fashion by working on things like plyos and explosive type of movements that also are gonna focus on that neuromuscular adaptation and your ability to recruit those fibers that maybe you're not even able to tap into what you already have. So short answer is I would still do your base training as base training. I might periodize the year in which you have a little extra time on your anaerobic energy systems. And I, I think that this is a person who would be um, a great candidate to get in the gym and work on some of those explosive type of exercises. I really liked the, the use of hard truth, Hannah. Uh, I think that was <laughs> a really good way to put it because there is, you know, we see these limiters in ourselves and we see where we, where we want to make improvements, but yeah, at certain points, there are times where we need to not necessarily accept it, but realize that, yeah, that this is a hard truth, that this is absolutely a limiter, and it's something that I may not be able to change all that much. So, so I think, yeah, taking the approach of you know, looking at different options of how can I make steps toward improving this is crucial. And I think you also alluded to this as well, but it's, it's, this is not something that's going to happen over a season. You know, mm -hmm. if you if you do go and try to improve this, um, where you're making these, these climbs are becoming a little bit easier and you're in a better position at the top, this may be a multiple year uh, endeavor where you're gonna make potentially small gains along the way, but, um, or you may not see much, you know? So it's gonna, be, it's gonna come down to more of, you know, how do you approach this when you're in the, when you're in the races? And yeah, just what is, how are you approaching the, the time up until that climb? So there's more this, these tactics that come into play as well. But, um, but yeah, I think I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. So I don't have a whole lot else to add, just that I think it's, uh, you know, I think that wording was really, 
really helpful to start with. And then just thinking of this as like potentially a longer term um, approach. Yeah, and I might even add to, um, I, yeah, I always, I love the phrase, race your strengths and train your weaknesses. So, you know, I, I'm still this, this last sentence he says here, am I destined for solo breakaways? Um, you know, you're racing your strengths. So, so if, if that's your strength, maybe you are looking at solo breakaways, but you're training your weaknesses. So maybe really your goal is less of to be, you know, to be the best person at these five minute climbs, but rather you're just training this weakness. You're training these fast twitch muscle fibers to get to the point that you're not getting spit out the back on the five minute climbs, but you're hanging on enough that you then can execute your strength and be able to make that solo breakaway. I agree with that completely. You know, I, I can tell you from experience, I'm somebody, my, my biggest weakness is that kind of one to three minute climb. I never looked forward to them. I learned how to always get over them with the, the field. Uh, some of that was strength. Uh, a lot of that was technique, uh, which can go a long way. But when I raced, I never, when we were in a race, when we got to rollers, where it was a bunch of one to three minute climbs, I never went, woohoo, great, I'm excited now. It was kind of, oh God, I got to get through this. I still knew that if I had wanted to have a chance of winning this race, I had to break away. I had to, I had to race to my strengths, not try to, to win on what I knew was my weakness. It was really just make sure my weakness wasn't something that was going to cost me the race. Excellent. I, I do want to throw out one correction uh, to that section. It's not the 100-foot woman, Trevor. It's attack of the 50-foot woman. For anybody that wants to Google that, uh, see the artwork for that, and maybe even watch the movie. Okay. Well, then the 100-foot woman would have pulverized her bones. The 50-foot woman just broke them in 100 places. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's why I was getting funny uh, Google results. <laughs> well, you were Googling 100-foot woman during our conversation, Ryan. Shame on you. Is that literally – we are having this great conversation. The two of you were Googling 1950s movies. Is that what was going on here? Sorry. So this next question comes to us from Robert Hall, I believe is his name. It's about structured versus unstructured intensity. He writes, if I understand Dr. Seiler's research correctly, the most important predictor for adaptation for intensity workouts is the time of, quote, work near or above LT2, that red zone, as, as our uh, writer refers to it. Most coaches seem to have a strong preference for structured intervals. However, I find it much more fun and motivating to chase Strava segments on my mountain bike or ride in Zwift races. Assuming one is mindful of progressive load, stress, and recovery, is there any downside to using unstructured intensity if the time spent near LT2 is similar? Who wants to start? I'll have it all quickly address uh, Dr. Seiler's research. So... This is splitting hairs, but I think it's important to split this hair. In Dr. Seiler's research, the best predictor of adaptation was performance. The, what, what I really enjoyed about his work is that he flipped it around. What he did is he looked for the top athletes in the world 
and try to then figure out how they trained. So he started with saying, here are people that have obviously trained right and, and adapted very well. So they, they had great adaptation. And let's figure out what they were doing to produce that great adaptation. So he wasn't saying, let's, let's do this and predict how it's going to adapt. It was a, well, we know there was great adaptation, so let's see what they did. So it's actually the exact opposite. He, he traced it back. I think that this question is interesting. I, <laughs> I almost feel like all of us uh, coaches are sitting here looking at it like, well, if everyone can just chase Strava segments and we're here trying to talk about our structured training plans, this is, uh, I don't know about this question, um, or maybe that's just me. But I think what this question is, is, is getting to is um, it makes me think of a study that uh, is in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sport, which uh, this study in particular found that a protocol of 13 times 30 seconds all out with 15 seconds recovery completed three times uh, created uh, that workout increased VO2 power output at a set blood lactate level in a 40 minute time in a 40 minute time trial and five minute time trial power to a greater extent than a protocol of four times five minute intervals. Um, so maybe that sounded a little bit confusing. So let, me, so let me break that down a little bit. So if you think about it, 13 intervals at 30 seconds hard with 15 second recovery is, is totaling six and a half minutes of hard work. If you complete that set three times, then that's 19 and a half minutes of hard work in comparison to four times five minutes which is 20 minutes of hard work. So let's say that 30 seconds difference, fairly negligible. So in this study, they would be comparing the fact that during these 13, 30 second efforts, you're able to work harder, but at the same amount of time as these four by five minute intervals in which you're not working as hard and therefore you're able to increase your VO2, increase your power output um, with those intervals, uh, with those shorter intervals to a greater extent than the five minute intervals. So if you followed all that, I think that that is, is really the premise that's, that's almost get, that they're trying to allude to here in this question uh, because they do reference the um, you know, time, duration, all of that. And so they're saying if we just link up a bunch of Strava segments and spend the same amount of time at these same intensities, is it really any different? And I think the answer is yes and no. Uh, because you know, they, they say here, assuming one is mindful of progressive load, stress, and recovery, is there any downside to using unstructured intensity? Well, I think that if you're mindful of progressive load, stress, and recovery, that it's no longer really unstructured. You know, just because you're doing your interval on a Strava segment doesn't make it unstructured because if you're still looking at that progressive overload, stress, and recovery, then you're going to be looking for, okay, you know, I want a five-minute Strava segment, and then I want 10 minutes of easy spin to the next one, and and I want to then do it, you know, and all of a sudden it actually is a pretty structured workout that you're completing just 
with Strava segments, which if that's the case, I, I think that's, I think that's great. And I think that's fun. And I think that that is, you know, the kind of the point in Strava in many ways is that we can all race while still doing our workouts. And I'd be lying if I'd never matched up one of my intervals to a big QOM that I wanted. Um, you know, but when we're truly, when we're truly talking about unstructured intensity, I think that that is when it gets messy because you're no longer targeting your energy systems. You're not following a polarized approach. You're not following a periodized approach. You just can't mix and match so many energy systems where you're going for, you know, a a 10 second segment and you're also going for an hour long segment and expect to have the same outcome as someone who's being very thoughtful in in all of their intervals and strategy for their workouts. Absolutely love that answer because I wrote some notes for this one ahead of time and and virtually wrote down the same answer. We are exactly on the same page here. I even put no and here's my reasons why for no and then yes and here's my reasons why for yes and and I think you're spot on. So I'm going to say what I think all of us are avoiding saying a little bit, which is, yes, Travis segments are fun. Zip races are fun. Interval work is not as fun. So we're all looking for a good reason to say, well, if I just go and do tons of Strava segments and Zwift races, I'm going to be super fit. And uh, I think what we just heard from Hannah, and I fully agree with is, yeah, you can get some fitness doing that, but you're not going to be the strongest you could be. Is that Pretty pretty good summary, Hannah. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I will say, um, I just want to put in a little caveat here is I actually did notice that they did reference a research in this, um, which I didn't notice at the beginning. And and what I referenced was was separate from that. So if I made that sound like I was referencing exactly what they are, I'm not. So I actually grabbed for this one a 2011 study that quite literally used Strava. They used a year's worth of, of Strava data to see to see if they could trace back, similar to how Dr. Seiler does, what the, the strongest athletes on Strava were, were doing in their training. And the one of the biggest discoveries they, they found was that the coefficient of variation or steadiness uh, correlated inversely with performance, meaning that the top performers tended to be pretty steady in their work, meaning if they went out for an easy ride, it was just easy. When they did intervals, it was structured. Uh, so this is another way of saying these people weren't doing a ton of time chasing Strava segments and, and racing on Zwift. That said, I would say to everybody, I can't remember the num- number of our ep- the episodes, right around FT160, so fa- our 60th episode, uh, we had Ned o- Overend on the show, and he used Strava segments to train, but it was very, he used it in a very structured way. Like he, he had a five-minute climb, he had a 20-minute climb, he had a one-hour climb, and he would just go and do repeats on whichever climb, depending on which energy system he wanted to work. And you heard Hannah talk about that. It, you want to get your best training, you need to target energy systems. You can do that with Strava segments if you're being consistent and, and maybe doing repeats of that segment. Great. Well, Hannah, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. A wealth of knowledge here. Uh, we'd love to have you back in the future. Hope you enjoyed yourself and um, thank you again. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, No, Hannah, it was a joy having you on the show. Thank you very much.
That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every one of our Fast Talk episodes. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Hannah Finchamp, Ryan Kohler, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>